0: This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome back to another episode of Business by the Numbers. I am Hunt Demarest, CPA, with Par Melison Associates, accounting firm specializing in automotive repair shops just like yours. Today's topic is going to be something that I don't think gets enough attention as it really should, and that's fraud. Different types of fraud that we see in shops, what we can do to stop it, and really just an overview to go down through of what you should be doing as a smart business owner to try and limit your exposure to something like this. Let's be realistic. Fraud is not something that we're going to ever be able to get away from. Um, Anytime that we're going to be dealing with humans, it's something that we have to be concerned about. But what I want to do today is kind of just share some different principles on this and some different ideas behind this to hopefully be able to prepare you as best as we possibly can. But before we get into that, I want to have a quick word from our sponsors, Shopware. When you're working on cars, you want to be able to access your tools easily without hassle or clutter. The same goes for managing your shop. Eliminate the clutter of paper ROs with Shopware's digital shop management software. Visit them at GetShopware.com. So the reason that this episode kind of came to mind here was Charlie from Worldpack asked me to teach two classes down at the STX conference. And actually, if you're going to be listening to this, that means that STX is already starting. It's going to be starting a little bit later this week. So I'm going to be teaching a class down there about fraud, fraud prevention, and, and what we can do as shop owners to be able to find this and hopefully stop it. And when Charlie came and approached me on and he said, you know what, Hunt, I really want to do a fraud, you know, embezzlement class, something like this. I really think it's a hot topic. And I thought about it. I said, you know what, that's a pretty cool idea because it's something that no, not a lot of people are talking about. Now, why aren't people talking about fraud? I think, you know, when before I started kind of looking into this more, not just in this industry, but into, you know, fraud and small business in general, my personal idea behind it was that people just didn't want to talk about this. People just like to think that it can never happen to them. And, and really, and I see this a lot in my business, is ignorance is bliss for a lot of people. If I don't see it, if I don't look at it, it just is not happening to me. In actuality, this is very, very common. Now, when I was kind of doing some background research on fraud and fraud in small business in general, there's some stuff that came up, which was pretty alarming to me. One of the things that I'll lead this off with is, is a lot of times people kind of leave this to their accountant. When you think of fraud, you think of money, you think of financials and they say, Hunt, that's why you're here. That's why your firm is able to, you know, look behind the scenes here and be able to uncover fraud. Now, one of the crazy things is if you've ever read some of these compilation letters and stuff that we have to legally attach to financial statements, There's one thing that is always mentioned, no matter what type of financial statement that you're issuing, is that we are not responsible for uncovering and identifying fraud. And a lot of people have asked me about this before, of why are you going to have a disclaimer? And the reason why the disclaimer is on there is because fraud, when done correctly, is very, very and almost undetectable. And so even if you have something like an audit, which my firm does not do, but you're going down through there, not only just saying these are the financial statements, but we verified all of the balances in all of the supporting documents behind this, even in something like an audit where you could be paying $10,000, $15,000, it's still the same thing. They're going to say we are not responsible for identifying fraud. Now, why am I saying that? I'm saying this is because there's not just one way to go about this. But again, it's usually when it's getting to a point that is very, very aggressive and something that sticks out like a sore thumb. I will be the first one to say that even all of the stuff that we do here, even all the different things that I talk about, if someone is going to be stealing $20 a year from you, you're never, ever, ever going to catch it. It's just so small. It's not material. And it's just impossible. But what we need to do is we need to put process and procedures in place that can hopefully eliminate that being able to happen. You know, another thing before we kind of get into these general ideas here is the reason I wanted to do this and the reason I wanted to do the class on STX is that sharing is caring, right? Everyone has heard that saying, but I don't think any other topic really resonates as much as this one does, because how do you know what to look for if you don't know what you're looking for? And what I wanted to do with this class, and we're not going to get the whole thing here on this podcast is I wanted to go through different examples of what I've seen, real life examples. This is not stuff out of the book. This is not something that, you know, people have talked about urban legends. This is literally first hand experience of what I've seen in shops over the years. You know, whether it's employees stealing parts, whether it's employees printing out fake checks, whether it's employees stealing credit card numbers of customers, you name it we've seen it. For those of you know that know about my firm, so my firm specializes in automotive repair shops. And we work with about 600 or so shops on a monthly basis, helping them understand their numbers, helping them analyze their numbers and helping them kind of dive into these in a little bit more detail. And over the years, we've worked with thousands, if not tens of thousands of shops. So you can imagine how many of these firsthand experiences that I've come across. And so the class that I'm going to be doing down in Orlando is going to be four hours, right? We're going to go into the very fine details, analyze each of these specific examples that I've done. And kind of go back and retrace our steps and say, you know what, what could my client have done differently there? What would have been the early clues to allow them to, for this to happen? And even more importantly, what could I have done to eliminate the chance of that happening altogether? Now, what I want to be talking about today is just a core foundation you know, a lot of people kind of know the general types of fraud that happen in a shop, stealing parts, stealing cash. Um, and what I want to do is kind of build a foundation around fraud so that you understand not only what to look for, but why this happens. And so let's start with that. Let's start. Why does fraud happen? You know, a lot of things people think fraud happens because someone just has sticky fingers. Someone just is like, you know what? I'm going to steal from the boss. I'm going to stick it to them. I'm underpaid. Whatever might happen. Or sometimes people just think that they're criminals, which is the truth, really. Yeah, I mean, fraud is definitely an offense. And we'll talk about later. You need to press charges. But, you know, there's a lot of different things that go into fraud. And no two situations are ever exactly the same. And so what happens with fraud or or the foundation of fraud is really broken out into what they call a fraud triangle. Now, I'm not going to take credit for this. I did not create the fraud triangle. Apparently, it's a pretty common thing because I've seen it mentioned in a lot of different papers uh, regarding fraud in small businesses. And so the way that a fraud triangle works is there's three different points on this triangle. Fraud happens by a mixture of one to three of these different areas. So the first area of this is going to be the easiest one, opportunity. And so in order for fraud to happen, there has to be an opportunity. Sometimes that opportunity is very big. you got a client that never looks at the financial statements, that trust people you know, with everything, and there's a huge opportunity. Sometimes that opportunity is very, very small. You know what? I, 99% of the time, I'm looking over my shoulder. I'm verifying balances. I'm doing whatever I need to do. Every once in a while I get lazy, every once in a while I delegate, and that is even a sliver of opportunities all someone needs. Uh, another one of the corners of this triangle is erratic spending or family issues or personal things going on. Now, this is a little bit weirder because it's not actually a cause, but it's a clue. And so what this triangle or what this piece of the triangle is alluding to is what you can look out for if you think fraud is happening or signs that would give you a little bit of pause if you saw it going on in your shop. Do you have a service advisor that all of a sudden has a brand new F-350, his wife has a new car, he's got a four-wheeler, his son's got a new four-wheeler as well. So erratic spending, overspending. As much as you love the shop routine that you have now, I'll tell you that switching to a cloud-based shop management system will pay off in more ways than you can imagine. Not only will you let go of bad habits that are costing you money, you'll free up more time for your techs to fix more cars. Your quotes will be quicker and more accurate, and you'll make more money per part than you ever did before. We all know that time is money. When you streamline your day, you waste less time on repetitive brain drains. Start fresh by going to your favorite browser and looking up GetShopware.com. The orange book a demo button will set you on a journey for more profit and less stress. You'll never look back. Check it out at GetShopware.com. Another thing is family issues. You know, if they're going through a divorce, if they're in a bad spot, um, you know, if the exact opposite is going on, you know that they're living paycheck to paycheck. They're asking you for advances. These are all telltale signs that someone is in financial distress and maybe a little bit of emotional distress that maybe is clouding their judgment and really forcing them into a corner. The way I kind of want to think about that and explain this to you is is think about when people talk about animals. The most dangerous type of animal is someone that's back, or an animal that is backed into a corner. It has nowhere to go except for fight, except to, you know, get aggressive and attack someone. And this is kind of very similar with this spending or family issues. If you have an employee, if you have a team member that feels like that they're backed into a corner, they got nowhere to go. You know, maybe they're behind on their rent payments. They're behind on their mortgage payment. They're going to do something drastic because they need to do something. They have no other choice. The last one on here is a little bit different. It's, it's really the justification side of this or how fraud starts. And so what that is, is that people feel like that they're underpaid. And so the justification behind this is, you know what? Greg is only paying me $22 an hour. I know that that is severely below market. So if I'm stealing a little bit of money here, stealing a little bit of parts, essentially, I'm just giving myself what I should be making, which is $30, $35. Most people do not want to do something that is bad. Most people do not want to do something that they feel is truly dishonest. And so what this corner of the triangle is essentially doing is is how people process this To themselves, it's how people justify this to themselves. I'm not stealing. I'm really just getting what is rightfully mine. That you know, I'm not getting paid for. And another one that I've seen firsthand as well is borrowing this. And so, a lot of time, fraud evolves. It's very rare to see a case where someone just goes zero to a thousand. You got an A employee. He's not doing anything. He's, you know, a great person shows up on time, doesn't have any sort of issues like this. And all of a sudden in the next month, he's stealing $20,000 worth of money from you. It really very rarely ever happens like this. What ends up happening in a great example that I've seen firsthand is I had a client that had an employee that took $5,000. And then he ended up taking it for a couple months. And then he ended up paying that money back. My client actually caught this. And this was an employee that had been with him for about 25 years. And he approached him about it. And he said, what happened with this? And he goes, boss, I was just in a really tight spot. You know what? I shouldn't have done it. But I just took the money out. I need to get a couple of things paid. I paid it back. He's borrowing it, right? Now, unfortunately for my client, what ended up happening is that was the first sign of this. It evolved into something much bigger. He took another... We'll call it a loan out of the business. That one never got repaid. The subsequent eight to 10 other loans, quote unquote, that he took out of there never got repaid either. And so it starts as borrowing it, you know, and you've probably heard about this. You probably read about this. And then it just gets out of control. You know, you start taking money, you start spending it just like racking up a credit card bill. You know what? Start with $300. I'm going to put a little bit of money on the credit card. I'll pay it back. Hey, you know what? I'll get a 1000 on this, and I'll pay half then half next month. It just gets completely out of control. And so this is the basic idea of why fraud happens. There has to be one of these different triangles on there in order for fraud to happen. Some of these cases, you'll see all three. You'll see opportunity, obviously. You'll have some family issues. And then they're justifying this by saying they're underpaid. Some of these you might come from, you know, might have a great family life, might not have any sort of crazy spending and might not even be barring or have any sort of justification. They just saw an opportunity and they just decided to take the money. So some of these things is just kind of good foundation for you to be aware of, for you to think about, because if you can understand why fraud happens, it will allow you to spot it a lot easier or maybe get a couple clues to stop it before it gets anything major. So now that I've scared you guys enough about fraud and how common this is and how hard it is to catch, what can I be doing right now if I'm a shop owner to be protecting myself? And so what I've really done here is broken this into three major things that everyone can do. The first one of this is process and procedure. This is the number one thing. If you do nothing else, processes and procedures are the number one thing. Now, you might be saying, well, Hunt, what do processes and procedures do if you already have fraud going on? Well, just like we said before, if only 20% of fraud is getting caught, the best course of action is not going to be attention to fraud when it's happening. It's going to be trying to prevent it altogether. And process and procedures, what I mean by that is that there is a set way to do everything. There's no ambiguity to it. There's no variables depending on who it is. Every single thing happens like clockwork. A great example of this would be let's just do depositing cash in a bank account. The process and procedures for depositing cash is when we have cash, it goes into an envelope. At the end of the day, that envelope gets matched to my shop management software, which is going to show me how much cash I received. I'm going to log that in. I'm going to put that into a safe. I'm going to put that into a drawer somewhere. And then at the end of the day, or at the end of the week, whatever that procedure is, that's going to go into the bank account. Why is that process and procedure important? Because if you ever wanted to go back and you ever wanted to analyze that, you would be able to pick out each day and you'd be able to easily say, Hey, you know what? $500 was supposed to be in the Monday envelope and I see $200. I know what's going on there. Let's look at the opposite side of that. Let's look at this and if you have no process and procedure, whenever you get cash, it just goes into a big envelope. At the end of the week, that envelope goes to the bank, whether that's three grand, whether that's $30,000, it is what it is when that hits the bank account. How can we ever verify that? You can already see talking out loud about how many areas there could be fraud and how many areas you could see some of that leakage happening right there. And so making sure that we have processes and procedures on this is going to be the most important thing that's going to apply for cash, that's going to apply for writing checks, that's going to apply for buying parts, returning parts, every single thing that we do, we need to have a process and procedure on that. The next one on here is going to be analyzing your financial statements. Obviously, I'm going to be a bit biased on this one because analyzing financial statements is my job. And also, you know, helping shop owners analyze their financial statements themselves is one of my favorite things to do. Obviously, one of the big things that we are doing, one of the big reasons why we are analyzing financial statements is to analyze profitability, try to make more money, try to make more profit, try to minimize taxes. But another thing is, is we can also use those same skills to analyze our financial statements for something that sticks out. And a great example of that would be if I'm looking at my financial statement, I start seeing accounts that are out of whack. Let's say that my inventory is growing and growing and growing on my balance sheet. Now, if I know my inventory in real life is not growing, what that's telling me is I'm buying a lot of parts, but I don't have those parts anymore. And if they're still in my inventory, then that means I did not put them onto a customer's vehicle. So where do they go? Now, if you weren't looking at the financial statements, you would even know because you would say, hey, you know what? My inventory's always been about the same. There's no reason for me to think that this is going anywhere else. So looking at the financial statements, analyzing these financial statements, being able to at least say, I might not know exactly what's going on there, but there is a red flag here that I need to dive a little bit deeper into this. The last one on here is, you know, something that I think, again, doesn't really get mentioned enough. And it's something that I definitely don't see happening enough. It's separation of duties. So separation of duties means that there's checks and balances to every single system. Unfortunately, what I see for most small businesses and honestly, a lot of shops as well, is that the financial side of things has no separation. How many of you listening right now have the same person that's receiving the money, depositing the money, and reconciling the money? Whether that's a bookkeeper, whether that's a service advisor, whether that's a general manager. That's really, really scary because the whole part of separation of duties and reconciliation of this stuff is there's checks and balances. If I have my service advisor, he's responsible for collecting the money and putting it into an envelope. If I have my admin person or my general manager that is responsible for verifying that that's the correct amount and turning that into the bank, and then I'm going to have hopefully even a third person, which could possibly even be me as the business owner, being able to verify both of their jobs and be able to say, all right. I can see this from start to finish. We got $1,000. $1,000 was supposed to go into a bank. Now, here I am looking at the actual bank statement. I can see $1,000 went in there. Again, just like the process of procedures, let's go the exact opposite way. Let's say that I had a service advisor that was responsible for receiving the money, reconciling the money, and depositing it as well. So we have $1,000 that comes in. He decides, you know what, I need a little bit of money. I'm going to take 200 bucks out of this. I'm going to delete off that ticket. I'm going to do whatever I need to do. $800 is going into the bank account. At the end of the month, he's going to be able to go through and reconcile that. Since he knows that $1,000 never hit on that, he's going to make sure that it doesn't look like $1,000 ever hit and that $800 is the right amount. There's no checks and balances there. He has full authority to adjust, make adjusting entries, do whatever he needs to do, and something like that It's going to be very, very hard to come and figure out later. Just like I mentioned before, if someone steals $20 from you over the course of the year, if someone's even stealing $200 a week from you, and you got a business that's doing a million, $1.5 million, even a little bit less than that too, it's probably never going to get caught until he slips up or until that gets to a higher level where it really sticks out like a sore thumb. So we have the big three that I'll call these here, process and procedures, analyzing the financial statements, and lastly, separation of duties. If you notice that all of these different things that I recommended for what you can do are all going to be going towards opportunity. What we're trying to do here is we're trying to eliminate the opportunity because unlike the other two areas of that triangle, Opportunity is the only one that almost always has to be there. And so essentially what we're trying to do here is we're trying to say, if I eliminate the opportunity altogether, if I have strong processes and procedures, if I have strong separation of duties, if I'm looking at my financial statements and I essentially eliminate all opportunity for fraud... It doesn't matter if I have an employee having some family issues or it doesn't matter if he feels like he's underpaid or is just borrowing money. It's just not possible for them to mismanage the funds. It's not possible for them to steal parts. It's not possible for them to sell parts out the back door because I've eliminated all these opportunities. And so what we're trying to do here is trying to eliminate those opportunities so we don't try and catch fraud. We're trying to nip it in the bud before it even happens and just not even allow it to come into our shop at all. Now, the next thing here, you know, kind of what I want to go down through is, is just a couple of quick tips in, in no particular order here, but really I think are probably some hot, hot ticket items that I see going on a lot in shops. So the first one here, and, and I know no one does this, and, and honestly, we see it less and less now that we used to, is taking cash out the drawer, skimming. You know, back in the day, what we used to say is that everyone had three sets of books. You know, what they showed to the government, what they showed to their spouse, and then what was actually going on. And a lot of that was because cash, you know, it was a very strong cash business. There was no shop management software. Everything was kind of pen and paper. And a lot of times people weren't even doing a pen and paper. It was just kind of handshake agreements and stuff like that. Now, gone are the days of that. And again, the cash has become almost a scarcity here. In the past, you used to see 95, 100% cash. Now it's 95% to 100% credit cards. And so we don't have as much cash in this business. However, there is still some cash in the business, and a lot of people like to play around with that cash. Not necessarily anything nefarious here where, hey, I'm going to try and hide money from the government. I'm going to try to underreport my sales. A lot of times people just use that as their spending money. Hey, you know what? We had a really good week. I got $5,000. You know what? I'm going to put $4,000 in the bank. I'm going to take the other 1000 Maybe, you know, I'll take some of it and buy the guy's lunch. The rest of it, I'm just going to put in my pocket. That'll be my spending money for the weekend. And this is something that happens a lot. However, one of the big things that I really, really don't like to see this going on is just in a shop is because we're adding variables to your financial statements. Remember what I talked about before, processes and procedures, analyzing your financial statements. If you're not following the process and procedures, then the process and procedures are not working. When I talk about process and procedures, I'm not just talking about employees. I'm talking about the owners as well because you taking money out of the business on the financials looks exactly the same as your service advisor stealing money. And I explain this to shop owners all the time. If we're going down through and we're analyzing your financials at the end of the month, and I go to my client and I say, okay, we got a little bit of an issue here. We were supposed to deposit $80,000 into our bank account this month, and we have $76,000 that went in there. We have a $4,000 difference. Now, if you're just like that example before, knowing that you're probably pocketing about $800 to $1,000 in cash every single week, you're going to probably say, you know what? That was probably me just taking money out. But we have no way of figuring it out. And that's why we want to always reduce the amount of variables in our financial statements. So just keep that in mind. Your service advisor stealing cash, your bookkeeper stealing cash, anyone else in your business stealing cash, from my perspective, looks exactly the same as you stealing cash. So be very mindful of that. Try and do this a little bit differently. You can still take money out of the business, but let's have a paper trail. Write yourself a check. Do it a different way so that we don't have these variables. Next tip on here is, is really after you've, you've already uncovered fraud or you think that some sort of fraud is going on. And what I always tell people, and this comes up a lot when we have a parts margin discrepancy or parts purchase discrepancy, is perception is reality. And what I mean by that is, let's say that I'm going down through with my client and we're taking a look and figuring out why we bought $45,000 worth of parts when our shop management software said we should have only bought $35,000 that month. Naturally, a lot of shop owners would just kind of go down through behind the scenes, not even tell anyone, and try to figure it out themselves on what's going on there. What I recommend is the exact opposite here. What I recommend is going to all of my employees and saying, guys, can you figure out any way that this could have happened? Can you think about ways of stuff that would have been purchased, but not necessarily on our shop management software, ended up going on a customer vehicle? I'm not doing this in an accusatory manner. I'm not going out there yelling and screaming and saying, hey, I know one of you guys is stealing from me. I'm going to figure it out. Not at all. What I'm going to go out there is I'm going to say, guys, any ideas here? Let's just brainstorm. Let's see if let's see if we can justify why this is happening so we can figure out how to eliminate this or how to fix this. What that is doing is doing two things. First and foremost, if you have someone that's actually stealing from you, they're probably not going to say, hey, boss, that's actually me. I'm running a side business. I'm buying my parts through here. However, what that's going to do is that's going to give them the perception that you're going to be able to catch them again, trying to eliminate that opportunity. If I'm a technician and I have and I've been taking parts and maybe I just took a set of tires and I sold them and uh, I sold them to one of my buddies. And all of a sudden, two weeks later, my boss comes out and says, guys, for some reason, we're buying more tires than what we think is going to go on. I can't exactly figure out what, but I'm kind of looking into it, see if anyone has ideas. Naturally, that person's going to be like, ooh you know what? I got away with it that time. I don't think that I'm going to be able to get away with this in the future. And most likely that just stops there. Another thing about asking questions, another thing about, you know, involving the rest of your team here is like I mentioned before, fraud is only caught 20% of the time. I can't tell you how many times that we've had issues like this with shops. I've analyzed their shop management software. I've analyzed their QuickBooks and said, guys, we have a difference here. We have a 10% gross profit different. We have some sort of leakage. We have something going on here. So we went down through the, the normal things, comparing parts margins, you know, comparing the matrixes to make sure that we're marking it up for what we really think we are, and then going down and just seeing who we're buying parts from. A lot of times, it's not very obvious of what's going on. And so again, I say, you know what? Go talk to the team. See if anyone has any ideas. Maybe it's something as simple as, hey, you bought that engine and we still haven't got it sent back yet. But again, what ends up happening is you go and you ask these questions, and I've seen this happen 10, 15, 20 different times. They never uncover what is exactly going on there, but magically the next month or maybe the next six weeks, it goes away. We didn't catch exactly what was going on. But again, just those questions being raised was enough for someone to say, "Ooh, you know what? I'm not trying to go to jail here. I'm not trying to catch charges. I'm not trying to lose my job here you know what, I'm just going to cut this out. I'm going to stop. So again, that's an example where fraud was never caught as in the fact of I got someone, he's going to get let go, he's going to get fired. But we caught it enough to be able to stop it to be able to address it. At the end of the day, if it's not going on anymore, more or less, that's 98% of our problem there. So again, perception is reality, guys. Ask questions, talk to your team, see if you can figure it out. Like I said, I'm not going to boss you around. If you want to go and you want to try and accuse someone, you might have the person that is your prime suspect. Hey, do what you want to do here. But again, you're going to attract more bees with honey than you are with vinegar. So try and be nice to these guys and try and be able to see if you can kind of uncover this in a bit more of a productive manner. Another thing that I would want to mention, too, is... Like I mentioned earlier, a lot of times people say, you know, analyzing the financial statement, Hunt. that's what you're supposed to be doing. That's what your team is supposed to be doing, which is partly true. That's exactly what people pay us to do. Hey, you know, we're looking over your shoulder. We're going down through. We're going to pick out major issues. However, something that looks odd to you might not look odd to me or my team. A great example of that is if I look at this and I say, all right, you know what? My client spent five thousand dollars. And this looks like it was for his workers' comp insurance. You know what? In the grand scheme of things, that doesn't seem too unreasonable. I have some people that pay a ton of workers' comp. I have some people that pay a very small amount. There is a ton of variability in something like workers' comp. However, you as the business owner probably know exactly how much you spent in workers' comp. And so if you look on there and you say, you know what? Why did I pay Fidelity $5,000 for my workers' comp insurance? That is way too much money. I'm only supposed to be paying them $2,000. And by the way, I just paid them that last month. You know, it's subtle differences like that where the vendor doesn't really stick out. The amount doesn't really stick out that much to us because it's the usual suspects, it passes the smell test. However, if if I have a shop owner that's looking at his financials, that's analyzing these things, they're going to be able to uncover some of these finer details a lot easier than I can or that my team can. Next on here is what happens if you catch someone with fraud? So let's say that you're in an unfortunate situation. You got someone that's stealing parts, stealing cash, whatever might happen. Um, you know, you talk to the person, uh, you discuss what went on. They admitted to this or they just decided to leave or quit or whatever might happen. A lot of times I have shops that say, you know what? They're not worth anything. She doesn't have two nickels to rub together. It is what it is. I fired her. I just don't want to deal with it anymore. And what I tell people all the time is press charges. I'm not pressing charges to try and get my money back. Obviously, I'd like to get my money back. And if you have certain kinds of insurances, you need to press charges to be able to use that as a claim. But the biggest reason why I'm pressing charges is to hopefully stop this from happening to someone else. And I've seen this happen before. The reason why we need to press charges on this is to hopefully give someone a heads up that you probably don't want to hire this person in the future. If you have a service advisor that was stealing money from you and you don't ever report them and they go on and they go to get hired at another job, they're going to say, wow, this person has a ton of experience. They could have made up whatever excuse that they had for leaving you. And now they're at this other shop and they could be doing the exact same thing. However, if you would have pressed charges, even if you never got a cent of restitution, most people hopefully should be doing a background check to look for this kind of stuff and say, "Whoo, time out. It looks like that there is a case in here where they had a fraud from their previous employer. There's no way that I'm ever going to hire these people. So two big things on that one is press charges so that you can hopefully alert someone to not hire this person in the future. Maybe you are that second shop. Maybe you are the one that is hiring that service advisor. And think to yourself, have you ever had someone come and get approached or approach you to have a job with you? And you're looking at their resume and saying, wow, was with this guy for 10 years, was with this person for another five years. This is a super strong candidate. Talks a talk, knows all the stuff that I need them to know. This is a slam dunk. When can you start? Can you start on Monday? Now. Well, everyone should be doing background checks on their employees, especially if it's in a situation that needs to have a level of trust there, like a service advisor, an admin person, a bookkeeper. And if you see some sort of fraud issue on that background check, you know what? That 50 or $75 that you spend on a background check is going to save you a ton of money in the long run. I know people change. I know people can recover. But unfortunately, if you have something like this where it's a fraud or a theft issue... It's probably just not a good idea to even try your luck on it and move on. Now, if someone else, some silly charge or, you know, a speeding ticket or some sort of outstanding fines or something like that, then that might not be something that's going to stop me from hiring this person altogether. But if you remember before, another thing that the background check is going to show you is going to show you some other things that might that might be of interest to you. Let's say they are really behind on credit cards. Let's say that they do have an active foreclosure or bankruptcy. Again, think back to what we were talking about before, that fraud triangle. One of the indicators here is financial distress. So again, that information is going to be power for you to make sure that you're making the right moves and making sure that you're surrounding yourself with the right people. And again, if you're in that unfortunate situation that you're the wrong person, that you're hopefully warning someone else in the future. I really hope that you enjoyed this one, and I hope that you will share this with your friends. Again, like I said before, sharing is caring. The way that we can eliminate this stuff is the way that we can stop it, the way that we can hopefully position ourselves so that we don't open ourselves up for a lot of contingent liabilities like fraud, like mismanagement and stuff like this. Um, I know that this is something that people don't feel comfortable sharing. People sometimes feel embarrassed about this. But again, you guys, a lot of you surround yourself with other business owners, with other shop owners. If you see this stuff going on, if it's happening to you, share this with your friends. Share this with your colleagues. Hey, look out for this. This is what happened to me. This is what I'm doing differently in the future. But you know what? Learn from my mistakes, and this is going to help you in your business as well. Shoot me an email at podcast at parmelis.com. That's podcast at P-A-A-R-M-E-L-I-S dot com. There's also a link for this in the show notes. Well, thanks again for joining me. I'm Hunt Demarest, and this is another episode of Business by the Numbers. I wish you all the best. Stay safe, and I will talk with you soon. You've been listening to Business by the Numbers with Hunt Demarest on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Hunt on your favorite podcast listening app. Let him know what you'd like him to cover. His email is in the show notes. Hunt is all for advancing the aftermarket.